You're listening to The 123 Show with me, Noreen Mir, on this Friday afternoon. And since it's Friday, it is time for the Agenda Cafe. And I'd like to welcome our co-host, Karen Ko. Karen, how are you doing? I'm very well, Noreen. How are you? It's great to be here again. I'm good, but I'm, a, I'm slightly stressed. And the listeners don't know about this, but because of the coronavirus outbreak, we've had to limit all our studio guests. Right. And uh, we have all our guests now on the, on the telephone, except for one thing. And uh, that is, um, we don't know if all the lines work because all the phone lines are shared amongst the programs. <laughs> so let's just hope we've got all our guests. Uh, perhaps I'll just do a quick check. Um, uh, Archana, are you on the line? I'm here. Excellent. Uh, Patricia, are you on the line? I'm here too. It works. Excellent. And also Kimberly, are you there on the line? Yes, I'm awesome. here. And can I just see if you were, you, if you were all able to hear each other? No, uh, I could hear Archana. Okay, you could hear Archana, but oh, so Kimberly, you can hear Archana, but you couldn't hear Patricia. That's right. Okay, and and I guess Patricia, you heard Archana, but not Kimberly. You see, this is this is That's a right. slight problem. Um, I'm gonna have to fix this. So I'm gonna hand it over to you, Karen, right, okay. uh, to to um to to start the program. We and were- and Patricia and Kimberly, I shall call you back. Okay, and Noreen will do her magic with technology to, to get this to work. So we are on the Agenda Cafe today talking about human slavery and trafficking. Definitely not a, not a pleasant topic to talk about, but something that is in front of us kind of hidden in plain sight every day. So around the world, it's estimated that up to 40 million people are trapped in some form of human slavery. And this happens in both poor and rich countries. It's not exclusively in uh, poorer nations. So what do we mean when we're talking about slavery and trafficking? Well, the United Nations defines it as the recruitment, transportation, transfer, harboring or receipt of persons by improper means, by which they mean force, abduction, fraud or coercion, and for an improper purpose, which includes forced labor or sexual exploitation. And we do probably hear mostly about sexual exploitation when you see uh, news reports about human trafficking and human slavery. And we also hear about domestic servitude as well. But it also includes other things like forced and bonded labor, child labor, and even forced marriage. So um, we're going to talk about this today. There's a lot to talk about, so we'll, we'll try to cover as much as possible. But I think it's just really important to, to raise awareness and to remind people that this goes on in societies all around the world pretty much every day. So as uh, we just checked our roll call earlier, joining us now is Archana Kotaka, who's Asia Region Director and Head of Legal at Liberty Shared. And Archana joins us actually on the line from London, where she is at the moment. And in Hong Kong, we're joined on the line by Kimberly Cole. Kimberly's the global head of sales and marketing at Link Global. But Kimberly's been on a long mission to to raise awareness and drive business to take action to stop modern slavery. She actually founded a thing called the Stop Slavery Summit to tackle this crime. And Patricia Ho, who's a human rights lawyer. And Patricia provides legal and strategic advice to a number of NGOs in Hong Kong. And she works with both local and international bodies to advocate for the rights of marginalized groups, including refugees, asylum seekers, and victims of human trafficking in Hong Kong. So welcome to all of our guests. I think Noreen's fixed everything now and we can hopefully all hear each other. Um, Archana, I thought we'd start off with you. If you can just give us an overview of just how serious this problem of human slavery is. 
Um, good morning, everyone. It's afternoon at your end, I should say. And um, I mean, you know, in, in terms of the scale scale of the problem, this has been described as the issue of this decade and the next decade, with the number of people identified running into the millions, as you mentioned earlier, and with human trafficking taking so many multiple forms, um, whether through through forced begging, labor exploitation, sexual exploitation, adoption, forced marriage, um, and so many permutations of it. I mean, it, it would be hard-pressed to say that there's any country in the world that isn't touched uh, in some way or the other by this epidemic. Um, I'd like to, to say that it acts, it's actually not just a problem in itself or an offense in itself, but rather a basket of offenses which uh, manifests itself often as a result of many things gone wrong. For example, migration, which has gone wrong. Um, for example, lack of economic opportunities, etc. And these are phenomena that we see, you know, the whole world is on the move. Uh, economic disparity exists in so many different places. And when you, you look at, for example, the laws, the enforcement ability of the laws um, and the protection and, and the sort of resources that are allocated at identifying people, these still don't go anywhere near meeting how big um, a problem this is. In fact, the, the whole problem has been estimated. The, the, this industry is valued at about 150 billion US dollars a year which just gives you an idea that this is the world's third fastest growing form of organized crime uh, behind counterfeit and drug trafficking. So the scale is, is there, it's growing, and it is there to stay until, unless we really step up our efforts to identify victims. And just to give you an idea of how far we are lagging in this process, we identify less than 90,000 people each year out of the 40.5 million people. So the problem is there, it affects every country and any state that says it doesn't affect their state is effectively in denial. What, um, Archana, that's a really interesting statistic you have there. Why is that, why is it that less than 90,000 people are, you know, we, that's all we can find out about or discover? I mean, you know, identification itself is very complex and also there are many victims uh, people have described this crime as, you know, an invisible crime. It's not so invisible, but in some pockets, it is very difficult to find people, particularly where people are in in very informal sectors or in very remote parts of um, a, a country or very ostracized in any kind of, of, of society. It's hard to reach them and to identify the problems there. But otherwise, I mean, victims are often so traumatized and they don't tend to self-identify. You rarely have people who go into a police station and self-identify as having been trafficked. Um, although that does happen occasionally now with much more awareness of the issue. Um, and also with issues such as lack of training of frontline responders so when police encounter a situation they may be they may tend to see it as a criminal offense committed by the person rather than has this person been forced to commit this offense is there an underlying story so, so you know these are just some examples of the difficulties of reaching uh, victims the difficulties of conducting screenings and in some cases, the laws are really poorly framed. Um, I think Hong Kong is an example of that, where the law is not comprehensive enough. There isn't a very clear definition of the offense itself. This impacts how people are then identified because the original offense is not very clear.
um, and not clearly stated in the law. So there are really a, a whole host of reasons why this happens and also lack of resources. In many countries, there isn't there just isn't enough being done to find identify people. Well, let's also bring uh, this closer to home and talk about the situation here in Hong Kong. Uh, there, there was a case recently uh, which unfortunately lost uh, the case in, in the final uh, court of appeal uh, where the government doesn't really have an obligation to specifically criminalise uh, forced labour. Perhaps let's bring in uh, Patricia Ho, uh, who was the lawyer who, who handled uh, this case for her client, uh, ZN. Uh, Patricia, welcome to the programme and thank you very much for joining us. Uh, perhaps you can sort of uh, paint an overview of uh, what the law is in Hong Kong or is there a law uh, in Hong Kong and perhaps you can tell us about uh, uh, what happened with your client yeah um well Archana just touched on this in Hong Kong we unfortunately don't have um, a law that specifically criminalizes uh, either human trafficking or forced labor um, instead what we have is um, a basket of different legislation that would address um, an aspect of the crime. So, for example, you have the crime of assault, you have the crime of unlawful detention, um, you have the crime of uh, fraud, um, and so on. So, what happens in practice is, for example, you've got a situation of human trafficking, then um, what the government's position is, is that they can um, use these existing legislation to prosecute the criminals. Um, but of course, in reality, um, that's uh, a very, very difficult thing to do. And what we see is that because of the lack of legislation or specific legislation, um, a lot of perpetrators or traffickers in Hong Kong aren't actually arrested or even investigated. Wow. So in the case of, mm. say, ZN, uh, your client, mm -hmm. now he, he was a man who was trafficked from Pakistan. He, he was, he was, mm. he was working in Hong Kong for four years. He was forced to work. He was yeah. not paid. Um, then mm -hmm. how were his employers sort of, uh, uh, criminalized? Well, well, they're not. Um, it's, it's a real travesty. This case has been going through the courts for over five years. And, uh, during this time, you know, we have, uh, alerted different departments within the Hong Kong government to the problem, um, including, I mean, the parties involved would be like labor department, immigration department, the police, um, and, and more generally the security bureau. So, they're aware of, um, you know, the case and we've given them the names of the traffickers involved. However, um, they face great, great difficulties invest in investigating this because um, the crimes committed. So, so as in the um, the complaint from Mr. ZN, you know, about not being paid, about being assaulted every day. All of these happened quite a few years ago. Um, at, at which point he was unable to go to the police because he was basically trapped in this situation. So by the time he was actually able to relay all of this to the authorities, um, the authorities thought, thought that his account was not specific enough. For example, he couldn't provide the dates, the times, exactly what was uh, spoken by the perpetrator, exactly where they hit him. And you can imagine, right, for somebody like him who actually suffered this type of treatment over a span of four years, it's practically impossible for him to give that level of information to the authorities. 
But the problem is at the state of our law right now, um, that's what's required from them. So there's just a complete mismatch. So the, the, the effect is to date, um, none of the traffickers involved in his case, and you know, goodness, it's such a high profile case already, right? But none of the perpetrators have actually been arrested um, and convicted of any crimes. Mm. Patricia, I want to come back a little bit later to um, the legal situation in Hong Kong, but I just want to bring Kimberly into mm-hmm. the conversation here. And um, Archana had mentioned earlier that, you know, this is an industry, it's an organized crime industry, um, bringing estimated 150 billion US dollars a year. And according to the International Labour Organization, about 99 billion of that from sexual exploitation. So, Kimberly, Following the money, I mean, what what role does the financial sector have to to play in combating um, slavery and and trafficking? Yeah, so the um, the financial sector has a huge role to play because, um, like a lot of crime, it is all about money. Um, so yes, there's a huge, huge human cost to this, uh, but a lot of these criminals are focusing on how they make money so they're trafficking lots of lots of uh, uh, as they would probably just uh, refer to them as commodities and that could be you know drugs people wildlife etc um, so the financial institutions can really help by sort of helping uh, trace the money follow the money look at suspicious activity and uh, try to identify where there are um, you know businesses or uh, unusual activities that they should um, pass on to law enforcement and others uh, to help investigate and is it easy for financial institutions to identify those kinds of uh, money flows and also is there a is there a body to which they can report i mean is there or do they have to report individually to their own you know police agencies or uh, anti corruption agencies well, the- or whatever yeah, I mean, both the, the lawyers on the phone can probably go through the uh, the laws in place in different countries um, in far more detail than me. But yes, of course, there is a lot of um, regulation now in many countries that help with this. Um, I would say it's not easy. Um, otherwise, you know, it would have uh, there would probably be um, you know, more. Um, progress than than what we've seen. Um, a lot of the the regulations um, help because people start to focus on it. But there's an element of education. So you mentioned, you know, sort of raising awareness. I think um, there is, you know, in, I'd say there is now a lot more awareness than you know when I started to run. Um, the Stop Slavery Summits five years ago, um, mainly because of the amazing work of people like Archana and and, uh, Liberty Global and and other institutions. Um, But it's also about education, and that's education of all levels within um, financial uh, institutions as well as other types of um, corporations. And so, once again, a lot of the NGOs like um, like. Liberty Global are doing training courses, etc. And then, of course, even um, from my time when I was at Thomson Reuters and, and Refinitiv, we had um, e-learning that we were including as part of our, you know, bribery and corruption and other modules that um, we were pushing out to financial institutions and others to really make sure that whether it's your sort of, you know, teller at the bank or it's 
um, people actually in the financial crime and anti-money laundering areas of the bank are all being trained, as well as, you know, relationship managers and all of the other functions that could potentially um, identify uh, problems. What, what are some of the ways that uh, traffickers try to hide what they're doing? Like, for example, would they open a bank account as a employment agency or, or, or something like that? Um, I think there's, <laughs> there's probably a lot of different ways, but the, the problem is that, um, you know, they can use things that will potentially look legitimate and so therefore you're trying to trace money through layers and layers of, you know, different movements, different companies, um, through often what look like potentially a legitimate business or a legitimate account. And so that's why it's not easy to um, detect. Plus, it's moving cross-border. Uh, the money's moving cross-border. Um, there's also, um, um, you know, challenges in um, cooperation and collaboration once we're moving across different jurisdictions, etc. So all of those things make it quite difficult Um I think collaboration and, um, you know, the intelligence sharing and education um, are all, you know, making a huge difference. Um, but it's it's how effective and easy that is, as you said, that, um, that makes the challenge. Uh, we're just coming up uh, towards uh, the 2.30 news. I'm afraid we'll have to break there. But perhaps after the news break, we can talk a little bit more about how these employers are, are really master manipulators. You know, they lie about the types of jobs uh, that, that they trick people into doing and also how we can be more conscious. And uh, as consumers, you know, are, are we all just being oblivious to all this problem that's happening? Are we truly blind uh, to, to so many people, 45 million people around the globe being in enslaved how can we not see it and how can we be a part of the solution uh, we'll return to this very uh, interesting uh, topic which you're listening to the one two three show with the agenda cafe this afternoon and uh, karen co is our wonderful co-host today Yes, hi Noreen. We are talking about human slavery and trafficking this afternoon and we've talked a little bit about how the scale of the problem, um, some of the legal issues and also the financial issues. And I wanted to go back, Patricia, to you because I understand that you were um, instrumental in drafting a, an, a basically a more comprehensive anti-slavery law that could be passed by the Hong Kong government. Can you tell us about that and what has happened, if anything? Yeah, well, um, it's been tabled in LegPro, um, but because it's been a private member's bill, so it's not essentially, to put, put it succinctly, it's not gone anywhere yet. Um, I mean, basically, for it to go anywhere, the government needs to take the lead and they've got to introduce the bill into LegCo themselves. Um, but, you know, what we really did with the bill is we just wanted to show the government um, officials and legislators involved that it's really not that complicated an exercise to to basically step up and, and criminalize these issues in Hong Kong. Um yeah, I mean, so for example, um, in Hong Kong, we've got um, people in the sex trade or domestic helper field or even in the F&B service industries um, who are, who we would say are fine to be victims of um, trafficking. But um, sometimes they don't go to the authorities because they worry that if they go and uh, tell them what happened, that 
that during the investigation process, the authorities will actually end up prosecuting them for things like overstaying or working illegally, um, etc. And so, you know, the legislation would reduce um, possible defenses for them. And um, then this would in turn um, maybe help more people to feel secure if they were to report crimes to the authorities. So that's an example. Um, but there's a lot to it, you know, such as providing authorities with more powers to investigate into accounts, to freeze accounts, to stop people from leaving Hong Kong, etc. All of these, which we think are essential tools to combat trafficking here. I was going to say, um, are there any sort of jurisdictions that Hong Kong should be following? I mean, are we lagging behind severely? Yeah, I mean... You know, so to be honest, the bill that we drafted, it it, it really was um, heavily following the one in the UK, just uh, sort of tailored to the Hong Kong context. Um, Hong Kong traditionally has been following a lot of UK laws, and we've got very similar uh, legal um, history and, and foundations. And so that was quite appropriate for us. Um, and in the UK, there's been a lot of discussions in their parliament about, you know, the best uh, strategies to deal with this. And so the whole process of how they came to these laws are quite transparent for us to learn from, to see. This is not to say that they've got, you know, the the, the best solution out there or, you know, they're, they're the best case for us to adopt. Um, it's just a, a convenient and sensible one. Um, I mean, around the world, but they have more or less done similar things. But, you know, the starting point is you've got to make at least human trafficking and forced labor um, a, a criminal offense. And, you know, it's unfortunate that um, the ZN case in CFA failed. Uh, but, you know, that's not to say it won't happen. And so we just really hope that, you know, in the following years that uh, the government will take the lead and just introduce these laws themselves. Uh, is the government... Are they interested? Are they aware enough of how important these laws would be? Or are they, you know, do they just feel like, oh, it's just a, a small percentage of people, we don't want to spend time and resources implementing this law? Yeah, this is me saying a mixture of those things. I think first they have um, repeatedly uh, stated that human trafficking is not a problem in Hong Kong. Um, I mean, in the stats that they've put out, they basically find one victim a year on average. Um, they also tell uh, international conferences that this is not a problem here. And so for them, if it's not a problem, why do you need to spend so much time and effort to tackle it, right? Um, but of course, then, you know, they will also say that even if there is such a problem, they say that their existing legislation is sufficient. Um, I mean, you know, we've basically just got to disagree there. Um, they, they say it's sufficient, you know, that what, what they have allows them to, to arrest perpetrators. The reality we see is that it doesn't. Um, I mean, for me, what this reflects is that they just don't seem to understand the scale of the problem. But but I don't want to, you know, just criticize them. I know that a lot of countries around the world are really just coming to learn about this in the last 10 years. Um, you know, I think that we just got to step up our game. Um, you know, in Hong Kong, 
uh, Chief Secretary Matthew uh, Cheng has been uh, himself leading um, a task force to look into this situation on an interdepartmental basis. Um, and they have actually um, employed a lot more people, whether it's in the immigration department or the police force uh, and also the Labour Department to um, to identify people and to investigate their claims. And I'm really happy to see all these changes. Um, so, yeah, something is happening. Let's also uh, talk a little bit more about um, uh, victim advocacy as well. Oh, by the way, uh, Kimberly, Archino, feel free to jump in as well. Um, <laughs> you don't have to wait for a question. If you wanted to re- respond to something that uh, Patricia said, feel free to, to do that as well. Uh, I, wanna, I mean, Laurie, yes, go ahead. can I just, can, sure, can I just jump in? I mean, I mean... Patsy talked about, you know, different countries and and about modelling on the UK. I mean, the reality is that 168 countries globally have a comprehensive definition of what human trafficking is, which is modelled on the UN Palermo Protocol definition. And we are talking about countries, countries in our region. If you look around us, Thailand, Malaysia, and even Singapore, being on third or fourth iterations of improving their existing laws. So we, if this is not having a comprehensive piece of law is not an extraordinary ask. It's something that 168 countries have already done and they've been refining over the years. And now what, what has happened is over time that they've moved on from looking at just human trafficking to looking at related forms of exploitation, such as forced labor, domestic servitude, forced marriage, etc. So we are seeing laws, very specific laws evolve also around a lot of those areas. And, you know, if, if, the, if the law isn't comprehensive, one of the things that happens is people get criminalized because they're treated as offenders rather than as victims. The second thing that happens is they don't have access to the protective services that they need. And and the last thing is, you know, compensation. People need to be put into a situation where at least they can be set right. I don't know how you ever set an experience like this right, but, you know, there are some essential things like rehabilitation, uh, reintegration, compensation, etc., that all feature as part of a law. And we don't see these elements currently in Hong Kong law. And when the UK passed the Modern Slavery Act, what they did was to bring together decades of legislation around these different offences to create a new offence of, of, um, of modern slavery. And it is really essential that when we start to look at what has been done elsewhere in the world, that we remember that we are not even at that place yet. Because our basic infrastructure around victim identification, protection, etc., is not there. Um, you know, going back to that point of, you know, these employers are master manipulators, so they will lie about the type of job that these people are really employed to do and, and the real location, etc. Or, you know, in the case of, of Hong Kong, the system is, is a little bit broken. You know, say you employ a domestic worker from Indonesia and she's being forced to work long hours here in Hong Kong. She's being abused and then she goes to, I mean, where can she go from there? She'll, she'll go to the police. Um, she'll, she'll get a lawyer like Patsy, for example, to represent her. But the case will still go nowhere because there are no laws to protect her. So what can you do in that situation? The, these people are... I mean, uh, Kimberly, go ahead. Yeah, I would, I, would, um, I would start by saying, you know, you need to start with an ethical um, recruitment agency as well. So, 
you know, in full transparency, I sit on the board of the of the um, Fair Employment Agency. But obviously, the more vulnerable these people are, regardless of whether this is now domestic workers or any um, workers, because they are put into effectively debt bondage by having to pay out illegal fees often mm-hmm. um, is is where it all starts. So firstly, everyone should be making sure that they're using an ethical employment agency um, to start with. Yeah. Um, we've got a, a, um, about 20 minutes before the three o'clock news. Let's talk about our role as consumers. You know, one point that really hit home as, as we were doing the research for this is that, you know, 45 million and uh, 45 million people enslaved around the world. Are we just completely blinded uh, by, by this? I mean, a lot of the times we don't see how it's personally affecting us. I mean, how, how is it really affecting us in Hong Kong? And we don't actually see that the products that we use, the, the, the cosmetics that we use, use uh, with, with the mica, um, coffee that we drink. Uh, we really don't know that the situation of these workers uh, getting products to us. So what can we do then? Uh, you know, uh, surely we're not powerless. Uh, Archina, maybe I'll put I mean, this question to you or, or Kimberly. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we there's a lot we can do. I think as, as consumers, we're often willfully blind and we're quite happy to bag a really good bargain at one of the high street uh, Chains because it's it's so cheap and, oh, and it's so the accessible. Yeah. Exactly. Oh. You know. You know. Who needs one jacket when you can have twenty jackets oh. and you could wear something different every day, right? <laughs> so, but but th- there's a human cost behind all of these, and and the human cost is is usually the worker in a garment factory or in a sweatshop somewhere, millions of miles away across the world, who has zero protection and who's being you know who's effectively subsidizing my choice of fashion. And and this goes again for so many other consumables. And then when you start getting into the raw materials, et cetera, that's another whole level. And one thing we got told over the years was, oh, it's so complex. This is supply chains is so complex. You know, we won't really get to the bottom of it. In actual fact, it is possible to get to the bottom of it. It costs money. It requires a lot of um, will on the part of companies to do their due diligence um, and to really look into where who they're doing business with, what their suppliers are doing, et cetera etc as consumers we are fickle um, we have sometimes boycotted we have sometimes responded to media saying that oh this company is terrible by not buying for a little while and then we go back in there mm-hmm. um, if you take the example of somebody like nestle uh, uh, and, and chocolate and how much there has been around uh, production of cocoa by children enslaved in west africa um, this has been going on for years decades almost but yet we still consume the, the chocolate from there. We still consume chocolate that comes from children who've been enslaved. And we're quite happy to look away for a little while and then to do something. But that's the problem. And also it's the lack of having lack of um, clarity of information and accessibility of information around what are good and clean products. All of that is improving over time. So you have things like Oxfam, for example, behind the brands, which is quite a comprehensive uh, um, place to look uh, for information. There's no 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 the chain, which is also really good. So there's there's lots of different uh, things coming up, but there's no comprehensive source of ah okay this tells me what it is. Just like you could look at a packet of veg and it would have food miles on it, which would give you an idea of how far your your food has travelled uh, before you purchase it. You wouldn't have something similar um, for this. So I think as consumers, there's there's a lot more that we could do to be a bit more consistent 
in our intolerance of companies using these. But the other thing that has made a, a, a bit of a difference over the last few years has been legislation popping up in different parts of the world, which are pressurizing companies to be more transparent around who they're doing business with, what risks are they taking, where are the vulnerabilities, and what are they doing to manage these risks. And that's really important because it brings a layer of transparency that consumers can accessible can access, but also um, it puts pressure on companies to do more. Mm. Kimberly, can we have yeah. you comment on this? Because uh, you work in risk, and sure. we've seen how um, uh, consumer advocacy has made people more aware of, for example, where their food comes from, sustainability, etc. What about um, on this issue? Yeah, so, I mean, I would add to what Archana said that, you know, I think it is about um, information, but also increasingly we're getting some great technology solutions. Now, a lot of the technology solutions that, um, you know, I was trying to expose um, at the Stop Slavery Summit were all around how uh, companies could use better data, better technology, how they could look at their supply chain. As Archana said, it is getting increasingly possible for them to manage the risk in that supply chain. Um, I guess in my, you know, current um, company at, at Link Global, it's really then about there are so many experts out there like Archana, like Patricia, there are people that you can speak to. And so connecting people to talk about, you know, there's many, many companies looking at how to transform their supply chains, either to drive sustainability normally as one of the ones, and obviously a lot of these things to manage and improve their efficiency and effectiveness and costs. But while they're doing that, the opportunity to also look at how that they can improve um, to make sure that they do not have slavery in their supply chains or at least try to lower all of those risks, um, I think is absolutely key. So, you know, I kind of take, um, um, you know, sort of the optimism from a lot of the uh, amazing entrepreneurs that are out there who are looking at how to use artificial intelligence for good, how to use blockchain solutions, you know, um, I was going to say, can you elaborate? Software. Yeah, can, can you elaborate yeah, about so, Leanne's uh, blockchain? I think I saw it in your anti-slavery summit. Yeah, Leanne Kemp from Everledger um, had a, um, she's got a solution which was tracking diamonds through the supply chain. So obviously, you know, everyone's sort of hopefully seen the movie Blood Diamonds of, of looking mm -hmm. at that. But there's there's other, you know, but, um, blockchain solutions here. Um, Diginex um, here in Hong Kong have um, used blockchain to uh, look at um uh, verification through the supply chain and looking at um, worker contracts and how to use the blockchain to add um, verification and transparency around that. So there's lots of very interesting things going on from that perspective. Um, and and as, as Archana said, things like, you know, Know the Chain and Oxfam and there's other apps that, you know, individual consumers can use um, when they are going out and, and um, you know, either buying fashion or food or the other things that we all um, obviously uh, need on a day-to-day -day basis. I think one of, uh, Noreen, one, just a very quick uh, point, one of the important things is to create consequences for those 
who don't follow the law. Mm. And what we've seen recently, as compared to five years ago, is there have been a number of cases filed in the US, for example, around um, the cocoa production, around um, the, the use of mica by companies like Apple, etc. And how a lot of these have, you know, are, are sort of building uh, empires and profits on the back of people who are extremely vulnerable and who are being enslaved. And we've also seen recently arrests of shipments in the United States by the U.S. authorities because those shipments come from places like Malaysia where uh, forced labor or human trafficking was involved in producing the goods. This is also really important because unless there is accountability for wrongdoing, then companies will continue uh, this cycle and not feel the pressure to really change. Yeah, and is is there enough um, penalty? I mean, are the penalties steep enough or the consequences are serious enough that it will deter people? Because we, we see in some crimes like counterfeiting, you shut someone down and you find them and two weeks later they open up a new factory somewhere else. I mean, this, this takes us back to asset seizures, because if you're not going to be serious about taking people's assets away so that you're taking away the profit that they've made from enslaving people, then they will just continue to do it because it is still profitable to do it. And this is why, you know, the, the advocacy uh, movement that we've started in the region and beyond is really about the fact that financial investigations have to run with criminal investigations. There have to be asset seizures and the asset seizures have to be applied to uh, victim compensation, but also to improving the overall system that goes to identifying and supporting victims. And unless and until we are taking away or disrupting the flow of profits, then we are not going to be effective at combating the issue. I don't want to be pessimistic, but I feel like many governments, particularly in um, country less developed countries, there's not enough incentive, really, even for the for governments to, for example, coordinate criminal and and um, legal branches and financial action. Um, branches of the government to work together. I mean, am I right in feeling this or am I being overly pessimistic? No, you actually. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there is and there isn't. I've seen I've seen in places. Sorry to interrupt you, Patsy. I'll be quick. No, that's fine. Mm. In, in, in some of the I work in six countries in the region and in some countries there is much more willingness. But then the willingness is often tempered by degrees of corruption um, lack of collaboration, etc. Whereas in other places, the resources is a real issue. So you've got two people doing financial investigations for the whole country. Mm. Uh, the likelihood of anything <laughs> constructive happening is very small. So the banks there will tell you that they submit um, hundreds of reports each year to these two individuals to investigate and take it further. And of course, nothing ever happens. Mm. So that problem is real, but we have to appreciate the, the the power of corruption in this particular area and we are talking about a lot of money so it makes it much more complicated but countries like thailand have shown that it is possible to do it mm. uh, they've seized you know millions of dollars particularly after the rohingya case because there was so much spotlight and focus on it um, so it is possible to do but it takes resources good law and political will to do it mm. patsy what were you going to say well, no, actually, I, I think that Ashina just covers it. I think that's really good. I think I think one of the things I would highlight is that it's I wouldn't really say that uh, developing countries are having a harder time, because in fact, 
um, the drivers of uh, a lot of these criminal um, links and, and cartels and, and um, chains um, are usually driven in developed countries, in rich countries. And they're the ones that are buying um, resources from, uh, you know, the have-nots. And so essentially, it, you could either tr- tackle it from the supply side or the demand side. Um, and I think that, you know, I, I wanted earlier to bring it, you know, to Hong Kong, you know, to what we can do here, because a lot of these um, things about, um, you know, what we buy and what we choose, um, whether it's it, it does make a huge difference. Um, but locally, I would say that we want to um, really look at how it happens in Hong Kong as well. Um, you know, for example, we. What what I have um, learned in my last few years in doing this work is I've actually met quite a few chefs in different restaurants around Hong Kong who have actually themselves been uh, victims of trafficking. Mm. So I've heard stories of how, you know, chefs have actually been forced to live in um, um, horrible conditions and that they have to work uh you know, 20 hours a day and that they're not able to go anywhere because they're under a debt bondage. Um, I've also, uh, you know, met a lot of um, sex workers in Hong Kong, especially, say, on um, Lockhart Road, where, um, you know, a lot of us think that there are sex workers who are there willingly um, because it's, you know, such an obvious trade that we can all see. But actually, a lot of them were forced into their situations. Um, they were lied to. They were told that they would come to Hong Kong to work as waitresses, etc. And they end up trapped in those situations. Um, the other things is, you know, in our domestic helper sphere in Hong Kong, which is a massive thing, right? Um, you know, you've got so many um, domestic helpers who, you know, are very well treated here. And, you know, a lot of domestic helpers say that they prefer Hong Kong over some other countries, such as, say, the Middle East. Um, but the fact remains that they have, there are so many cases of domestic helpers being horribly exploited in Hong Kong. Um, I, I couldn't believe it myself when I first heard of them. Um, and then I started processing a lot of these cases. But you've got many domestic helpers who are not given food, who are not allowed to go to get medical attention when they're ill. Um, they work easily 20 hours a day. Um, they never have uh, any, they never have any rest days, etc. And the ones um, who come and, to you are just really the tip of the iceberg because there are so many exactly. who are scared to come exactly. forward because mm. they don't want to lose their jobs. Maybe there's a language barrier for them to report their, their yeah. situation. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's for me, it's, um, you know, the fact that we just all need to be aware of this and ask the right questions all the time. Um, can I just give you a cute little example? Yes. <laughs> I, um, you know, spoke with a bunch of um, 13 year old students a couple years ago and they did a school project about this issue and they were so concerned and upset about it. Um, so they, they asked me what they could do. Uh, and before I could answer, and they said, hey, we actually came up with an idea. What do you think? So they showed me this app that they were creating that um, helps domestic helpers to keep track of their receipts, their payment, um, gives them a place to save all their photographs showing, um, say, for example, injuries um, or other photographs they want to, to keep you know, for, as evidence. Um, 
And I was just blown away. You know, you've got 13 year olds coming up with amazing ideas that are actually really practical to help people, um, uh, you know, perhaps uh, have enough evidence to go to the authorities with. Well, so, yeah, there's a lot of yeah. things that I think we can do as long as we're aware. Uh, that's good. Um, you made me feel much better <laughs> because I was feeling kind of despaired. But it's true, I think, you know, because this is a, a relatively, oh, or the awareness of this is relatively new, it, we are going to rely on the next generation to really bring it out into the open and and make sure that, that people are aware of it. And I know, for example, um, CNN every year has a Freedom World Freedom Day and they go into schools mm. for the entire day. I think it's next month in mm -hmm. the 11th of March and they spend the entire day discussing this with teenagers. Yeah, I have to tell you, in my experience of talking with both um, local students in Hong Kong and international students, it seems to me that very often that the students would know even more about this problem than the teachers. And it's a, it's a beautiful sign. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it just makes me think, I think the new generation will be more conscious with their shopping. Um, also, you know, they, they probably won't mm -hmm. use diamond rings to propose anymore because of all the blood diamonds. Yeah, you know, I mean, they're they... going to choose alternative, <laughs> you know, just just as, a, as an example. They're willing to vote with their with their wallets and, and make make change happen. Rightly so. I mean, I, I have to say I was pretty pessimistic. I still am quite pessimistic about the situation, about um, what we can do. And there's a lot more we can do, but there's still so much that our hands are tied. I mean, with... I just just looking ahead, I mean, do you think this is um, a problem that, I mean, can ever actually be eradicated or is it just because we're always going to have inequality, there's always going to be exploitation. I mean, you know, there have been so many goals set. So the eradication of child labor or child slavery by 2020 or 2030, etc. And, and, you know, it's like all of those, the, the long, I mean, you've got, to, you've got to be working towards something. And unless you're working towards something and there is a roadmap in place to achieve certain milestones and certain goals, it becomes very difficult to imagine how it will be possible to do it. Um, I think I've done this work for way too long. I'm extremely cynical and pessimistic as well. But every, every day along the way, a small win makes me get up and fight again the next day. So I'd, I'd like to say that we will probably never eradicate the problem entirely because that would mean eradicating economic disparity, poverty, various other things. But what we have not done enough of and what we can definitely do more is to give traffickers a good run for their money because we, we are not even touching the surface of the problem just yet. So we really need to, to, to get into it. And one of the things that I would really encourage people to do is to stop thinking that it's just criminals, organized criminals that are involved in the business of trafficking and forced labor. Many of the large legitimate corporations are also advertently or inadvertently sponsors of this issue. And we must not give this the brush of organized crime because that means they are not included in the conversation. It's really important to not do that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think we, we, we still have a, lot, a long way to go. There is still a lot more to do. Um, but I don't think we're going to ever eradicate this.
Absolutely well said. I mean, I really urge our listeners to really think about their slavery footprint. You know, think before you buy, I don't know, your, your next shirt, your next blouse, your next pair of shoes. You know, do you re- really need those new trainers? And really check out the company's profile, the partners that they work with um, and cosmetics that you use. There, there's a number of things that we really can do as consumers. Meanwhile, thank you so much, uh, Archana, Kimberly and Patsy, f- for joining us this afternoon and bearing with our technical um, errors <laughs> yes. to begin with. We really appreciate uh, you sharing your expertise with our listeners and it's definitely a topic we will revisit uh, another time thank you very much indeed